This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Today we pick apart the intricacies of Genesis chapter 8. From wordplay to metaphor, the authors are making distinct choices to cause us to hear a specific story, not just another diluvian epic. Let us hear. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated, And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So in verse 1, this is the first time we hear the scriptural idea of God remembering a person or thing. The word in Hebrew is zachar, which is the same word for male, the gender. In Genesis, we have heard this word only to communicate the gendered male. But here in verse 1 of chapter 8, it is the first time it is not used in this way, but rather is the verb to remember. So just hearing it in Hebrew, you don't hear a difference at all in the sound. What exactly this means intertextually, I'm not going to claim I have all the answers, but I definitely want us to notice it because in English, there's no way that we would. Another early point of intrigue in the original Hebrew is where it says that God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. That word that is being translated as blow is the word eber in the original. Eber is also the same word as our English word Hebrew. Why do they sound different? Well, English, that's literally the only reason. So what does this word eber slash Hebrew mean? Simply it means to cross over or to move greatly from one place to another. When the text calls Abraham the quote-unquote Hebrew, or Eberite, it is saying that he is a shepherd, right? This name is evocative of the Bedouin culture of the Syro-Arabian desert. And furthermore, that word Arab is made up of the same letters as Eber. So as we've seen before in our study of Semitic consonantal roots, they are related at the very least and maybe even the same word functionally. So you might say that Abraham is called a Hebrew because of his ancestor Eber, which is true, 
But it's interesting that the text consistently calls him an Eberite when it could just as easily call him a Terahite or a Shelaite. But no, the text focuses its attention on Eber because the scriptural narrative is consistently pointing us to the lifestyle of the Bedouin shepherd for a variety of reasons. One is the image of the faithful as sheep in a hostile environment, obediently following their only source of life, which is the scriptural God. Second, the Bedouin in the desert cannot re rely on his fortified walls of a city to protect him from bandits or other hazards. His reliance is only on God. He is away from man-made extravaganzas and is alone in the wilderness where God carries him like the wind. This is a bit of an aside, I know, but I thought I would explore this because it is such an important word, and it is the first appearance of this word in the Hebrew Bible. We then hear about the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven closing. Once again, this is referencing the waters above that are kept in place by the firmament and the waters below that are kept by the ground. These are not obviously geological realities, but functions in the story. This is something that consistently bears repeating. We then get the image of the number seven, again referencing a completion, and the ark finds its rest in the mountains of Ararat. That word rest is nuach, which is Noah's name in Hebrew, as we've said in previous episodes. I want to draw our attention to the fact that the ark makes its landing, its rest, not in Canaan or even the Syrian desert, but in Gentile lands. Ararat, or Urartu, is on the border of modern-day Iran, Turkey, and Armenia. That's quite a distance from the scriptural homeland of the Syrian desert. So what's going on here? God's repentance through Noah is carried by the flood from the Syrian desert, we could assume, into the edge of the world, which is what that mountain range would be for the scriptural authors. This is incredibly impressive, and it calls to mind the New Testament where there is an intense emphasis on spreading the gospel to all nations by carrying the message, as Paul and Barnabas do, to the ends of the earth. In fact, this idea of the waters and the wind together carrying the ark to the edge of the world is very evocative of Paul's ship getting blown in a storm onto the island of Malta during his voyage to Rome a place that represents the HQ of the Gentiles. The parallel is fascinating, and perhaps it's just my observation, but it bears a mention. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Now, here we are introduced to a very poetic concept in scripture, which is the juxtaposition of the raven and the dove. At a very basic level, we should attempt to understand the differences between these two animals 
in, in our day-to-day -day lives before seeing how they function in the text. Ravens, belonging to the family of corvids, like crows and grackles, are incredibly intelligent, cunning creatures. Doves are dumb in comparison. They're certainly smart in their own right. They're not stupid. But compared to corvids, like the raven, not so much. Doves are actually a domesticated type of bird. It's harder for us to comprehend this in our modern city lives because we see them as a city bird and sometimes even a pest that's always getting into trash and whatnot. But humans have been domesticating doves and pigeons for thousands of years, unlike ravens and other corvids. This means that they have a totally different disposition. Think of the differences between an arctic wolf and a stray golden retriever running around the neighborhood. They are not entirely different animals, but they are certainly different according to how we view them and the way that we interact with them. All this would not have been lost on the authors of the text, so we shouldn't discount it. So now let us look at the story. The Hebrew word for raven is oreb, which, if I may push us in a certain direction, is an anagram of the word Blaze elaborated on for us, eber. If you flip the second and third letters of this word, eber, you get oreb, which potentially has connections to the word ereb, which means evening or to grow dark, is in the light of day passing into the darkness of evening. Even this word seems to have a similarity about it to the word eber, which is to pass or cross, where we get the word Hebrew from. I wager that the word for raven is a subtle poetic play on idea used to qualify the concept of the word eber, just like the author's direct use of that word, eber, as a verb to describe the blowing of the ark across the waters. Because, well, what is the raven doing after Noah sends it out? According to the Hebrew, it is going out and returning continually until the waters dry up from all the earth, which is indicative of the activity of a shepherd going out into the wilderness and returning. I don't want to push this concept too much, claiming I've unlocked some secret understanding, but I do think the authorial choices here in this poetic section are very intentional. And I want to at least make an attempt to see what's going on, because much of the previous scholarship reduces this well-thought-out passage to some superficial reading that they claim shows the impatience of Noah or wickedness of the raven due to its never returning to Noah, which is a false interpretation that comes purely from the English rendering of the passage, which makes it sound like the raven went out and didn't return, going to and fro, which is really the opposite of what the Hebrew says. At a very basic thematic level, this seems to be a picture of what the garden could have been. Humans working in the given circumstances wrought by God with the animals. Noah is utilizing the strengths of the animals to accomplish something. He did what he was supposed to do, stay in the ark 40 days and 40 nights on the face of the waters. And now that that is over, he's working with the animals to find a sign that it is time to exit the ark and listen for God's next directive. The raven is going out and returning, searching for a place for the ark to halt upon the earth, the land. And the dove is sent out to see if the waters have receded, ultimately to determine if there was yet vegetation. This is evident in the fact that the raven was sent out until the waters receded from the earth, the aretz in Hebrew, and the dove was sent out to see if the waters had receded from the face of the adamah, which is the ground. Uh, and that's a different character, if you will, than the aretz, the earth. It's the mother ground, the adamah of Genesis 1, who produces and provides vegetation for all the land animals who are her children. Once the dove eventually returns with the olive branch, 
Noah knows that it is time. Now, in discussing the functionality of the dove in this story, it is necessary for us to actually appeal to a later story in the Bible. That is the story of the prophet Jonah. That name, Yonah, is the Hebrew word for dove, and it makes sense because, like the Yonah of the flood story, the prophet Yonah is sent on a mission. But what is the mission of the dove of Genesis? To find the dry land, the habitation for the contents of the ark, that is, Noah's family containing the entirety of humanity, i.e. Jew and Gentile, and the entirety of the behemah, that is, the clean and the unclean. Now, the parallels between the flood story and Jonah are quite expansive, and honestly, the best breakdown of this is in Father Paul Tarazi's book, Decoding Genesis 1-11, through where he reserves nearly one-third of its content towards using Jonah to illuminate the flood story of Genesis. I won't go super far in depth, but I think that there are some points that are really worth the discussion in order to hear what the authors are pointing us to. First of all, the journey of the dove is really interesting in that it is sent out of the ark to find dry land and is met with water instead and then returns. After some time, Noah sends the dove out again, and this time the dove returns with the olive branch to signify that dry land is in sight. And finally, Noah sends the dove out a third time and it completes its mission. The prophet Jonah, on the other hand, is sent out of Joppa in Palestine to Nineveh, a land that is just south of the mountains of Ararat, mind you, in order to preach repentance, that is, Necham, or Metania, to the Ninevites, that they may be saved from God's divine ire. Jonah flees from this calling and sets sail on a ship to the land of Tarshish, which is quite striking in that it is literally on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea on the southern coast of modern-day Spain. God sends mighty winds, that is, the Ruach, once again, to shake the boat until the other sailors on the ship blame Jonah and throw him overboard. Jonah, now at the mercies of the Maim, gets swallowed up by a god Gedol, a mighty fish, and rests in the belly before being spit out onto the dry land in the vicinity of Nineveh. Thus, it is clear that the fish carried him from the Mediterranean to the destination God had commanded him to go to in the first place. In other words, the fish acted as Jonah's ark. Remember that this parallel with the ark is the fish and not the ship Jonah took to Tarshish. The ark is not a boat. If it was, the scriptural authors would have used the word for ship that they use in Jonah, which is Ania. So this section corresponds to the dove of Genesis finding only the water before heading back to Noah's ark. In Jonah's attempt to flee, he only found himself in a situation that carried him back where he was supposed to go, that being taken up by the great fish as his vessel to navigate the Mediterranean Sea. And finally, when he is ejected from the fish, he proceeds to preach repentance to the Ninevites, which unexpectedly the Ninevites actually accept and Jonah completes his mission. This corresponds to the return of the dove with the olive branch, signifying the fruit of its labor. The mission is complete. The choice of the olive is also evocative because olive oil comes from this plant, and the oil is a frequent image in scripture representing forgiveness and healing.
One final note on the nature of the dove and the importance of the dove as one who is sent out on a mission is reinforced and even solidified in the New Testament, first with the character of Peter, who is called the son of Jonah, instantly giving you the image of the scriptural prophet. Peter is called to be an apostle, that is one who is sent out to the lands of the Gentiles. That connection between apostolos and Jonah cannot be missed. It's quite a literal image, too, because the Yonah of Genesis flies over the waters of the flood. The Yonah of the minor prophets is sent by God across the Mediterranean. And then the apostoli of the New Testament are sent across the Mediterranean to the people of the Isles and eventually to Rome, which, as far as scripture is concerned, is the edge of the world. I say all of this not only to draw parallels between Genesis, Jonah, and the New Testament, but to show that these elements of the story have broader context that is illuminated by hearing the text as a totality, the importance of which can never be understated. Everything is intentional and everything has function. When we approach the biblical text, it is crucial that we always keep this in mind. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. In verse 13, we are told that the waters have dried from off the face of the earth. And I want to offer a brief reminder that with this ancient understanding that has been communicated through the story, the authors don't mean that the waters have evaporated into the skies like we modern people would think of it, after being taught such an idea from our elementary school teacher's lessons on the water cycle. I'm not saying the water cycle is wrong, or that the ancient people had no similar concept, just that the idea is absent from the text itself, and in its place is this concept that waters proceed and recede from the skies and from the ground. Just think of God causing the waters to rise up from the Adama to create mud to form man in Genesis 2. That's something we touched on in a previous episode. In fact, the verb used in the Hebrew text for dried is yabesh, which is the same verb that forms the word yabasha of Genesis 1, which is the dry land that God causes to come up out of the waters during creation. So very clearly, the idea is that the waters recede into the dry land, or perhaps not quite in contrast to this idea, is that the dry land arises from the waters like in Genesis 1. Why is all this important? I think it's important because this phenomenon means destruction for the living creatures, and it is totally subject to the whims of God, which should strike a sense of fear, or at the least, awareness in the mind of the listener. God can cause waters to fall down from the sky or to rise up from the ground and swallow us at any moment, depending on how he's feeling. Also in verse 13 is this phrase which describes Noah removing the covering of the ark. Now, we didn't hear any mention of a covering when the ark was commissioned two chapters ago, so deliberately or not, the word should stand out in English and in Hebrew. 
In Hebrew, that word is mikseh, which is the same noun used to describe the various forms of covering that cover the tent or tabernacle of meeting in the later books of the Torah. In all of Genesis, the word as a noun only appears here. However, as a verb that is to cover, or kasa, appears twice before this verse to describe how the waters of the flood covered everything under the heavens and likewise covered even the mountains. So the earth was covered by the swift hand of God in the form of a flood that committed all those of the earth to destruction, and the covering is what protected Noah and those who were with him from this destruction. Which makes sense, considering the coverings of Exodus and Numbers that covered the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, like the ark, is covered so that the wrath of God, which is his glory, does not destroy everything around it. Brilliantly and totally in character, the scriptures are teaching us how to understand scriptural concepts. If we put in the work to hear these teachings that weave the very fabric of the biblical story, we cannot go on and theologize about the divine glory of God and how we can only approach him through Christ then. As long as we are covered in the blood of his son, we are made pure enough to be in his presence so we may pray to him and we can feel him and it is so nice. No, the text is extremely clear. God's glory will utterly destroy you. The only way to approach him is by crying out to him for forgiveness. And that is not even an approaching. It is a cry for help. The only character who speaks to God face to face, something Christ does not even do in the New Testament, is Moses, whose name in Hebrew is the word story or parable. The only thing in direct personal contact with God, the God of Scripture, is the story of scripture. And it is through the story that God has made known to us. Christ doesn't say, well, I met with my pops a week ago and he said, no. Christ quotes scripture. Christ prays scripture. Christ teaches scripture. We are not special. We cannot feel anything but our own emotional response mechanisms. Maybe I'm wrong, but if we hear scripture, I think we'd be too afraid to champion the opposing argument. If we truly felt God in our prayers, our prayers must have been quite short because we would have been consumed by fire. One little PS note at the end of my assertion I'd like to add is that the covering I've been talking about is not the same as the covering of sin and the idea of atonement, as we've come to call it in English. It's used to talk about the covering of nakedness, shame, or sin, but scripturally, that is not exactly the same as forgiveness of sin in terms of atonement. Very curiously, however, when the ark is being described to Noah in how it should be constructed, it says that he should cover the outside and inside with pitch. The word for cover in this verse is not from the verb kasa, which we've been discussing, but the verb kafar, which, very interestingly, sounds similar to the modern Arabic kufa or kufar, which we've talked about in a previous episode. But anyway, the verb kafar is the word that does get translated later as propitiation or atonement in regard to sin. And we don't have time to explore this right now, but it will undoubtedly come up later. So at the very least, this should serve as a reminder of the ultimate calamity of translation, because both 
times they get translated as cover while they mean different things. I'm not saying we shouldn't have translations, but how much more brilliant is the text without it? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We end with Noah building an altar, which to anyone hearing scripture so far, this should be an instant red flag. As Father Paul Tarazi would say, anything relating to what humans build is bad news. This is setting us up for the eventual settlement of Noah when he plants a vineyard, which ultimately tarnishes his character. He begins as a shepherd, like Abel, but ends up as a settler, like Cain. In fact, this building of the altar to sacrifice animals to God is somewhere in the middle ground between Abel and Cain. Cain was a builder, of course, but Abel was the one who sacrificed the first fruit of his flock. The difference in the case of Abel, though, was that there is no indication that he built any sort of altar for his sacrifice. This is where Noah is stepping over a line. This section where God smells the pleasing aroma is also weirdly translated in most English translations. That word smell in Hebrew is riach, which is related to the word ruach, of course, meaning wind. So it is a smell that is blown, which is simply the smoke arising from the burnt offering. The word that gets translated to sweet comes from the same root as nuach, which has the connotation of something being soothing. The translation makes the text sound like it is saying that, that God really likes the smell of burning animal carcasses, which is not how the original comes across. In the original, it's simply saying that God breathed in what was being emitted from the burnt offering and that the smell was restful or pleasant. This idea of it being sweet is just odd sauce, really. It is focusing on Noah's descent into recreation and staying put. Again, this is turning into a version of Noah as not so much a symbol of repentance as much as the symbol of complacency which he will embody in the next chapter when he plants the vineyard and really just chills out. I can't stress enough the importance of all of this being set up by Noah building this altar. Every time in scripture that the word bana, to build, has been used, it is followed by something negative. The building of the wife for Adam, the building of the city for Cain, and the building of the altar for Noah. This is a pattern that we must pay attention to. And finally, we have what is really an ominous pronouncement by God, that he will never again curse the ground because of man. That word curse is actually the Hebrew word kalal, which more literally means to dishonor. He also says that he will never destroy all life from the earth because of man's evil either. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, that refusal to curse the ground again is a fulfillment of Lamech's prophecy that out of the ground that God has cursed, this one will bring us relief. 
Second, it is ominous, as I said, because God will no longer punish anything or anyone for man's iniquity except for man itself. What man will reap, man will sow. God will not defile the ground, nor will he defile the nefesh chaya. God will defile, dishonor, and curse the men who do evil. This is a warning for all listeners of Scripture. Everyone has themselves to blame. As well as being ominous, it also contains a bit of humor, although this might just be because I am reading this in light of so many common anthropocentric approaches to Scripture. That final bit of the cycle of nature always continuing, regardless, is really a smack in the face to the human idol of self-importance. God is saying that even if I have to wipe out all of humanity, the nefesh chaya in the seasons will be unaffected. Man, do we humans hate messages like that. We like to think that we are the apple of God's eye. But no, we are simply workers who have a job to do. And if we don't do it, then we'll get fired. That's the name of the game. The flood was God's warning shot. And as we see in the next chapter with God raising his bow in the sky, his weapon of destruction still exists as a sign and as a warning. And we'll get more into this next week, but no, the bow in the sky is not the damn rainbow. This isn't a cutesy story explaining the origin of rainbows before we humans understood how light refraction worked. That's silly. This is much more than that. Anyways, that's enough content for one episode. We're getting into places in scripture that may be increasingly more and more difficult to hear as our egos become more and more under attack by the text. This is to be expected but we must allow it to happen, and we must allow God to humiliate us through it, because only then can we be humble to take what we've learned and live it practically. We must, as slaves, not respond to Scripture by engaging in endless theological speculation, but to get right to the chase and responding as quickly as possible to what it is teaching. This is an opportunity for us to learn from the Muslims, who after hearing the Quran recited to them, say, Sadaqallah al-Azim, which means God has said it in truth. I think I'll just leave it there and simply say, Ya Raburham, Lord have mercy. And he shall be like the tree which is planted by the stream.